Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. It's an exciting time of the year for sports, ladies and gentlemen. Sophomore sensation Lamar Jackson is redefining what it means to be a dual-threat quarterback in the National Football League. Odds on Jackson to win the MVP race were at 50-1 to to begin the season, but have since plummeted, making my bookie's prop selection more attractive than ever. And then coming up this month, we have one of the most stacked UFC cards of all time, McGregor versus Cerrone. Three championship fights, all highly anticipated, right in the betting capital of the world in Las Vegas, Nevada. And without a doubt people are going to be looking to get in on the action and we have the best place for you to go my bookie if you're the kind of guy who likes to bet a little to win a lot try a parlay for instance if you like a couple of the big favorites this week parlays are perfect because they let you bet multiple games together for a much bigger payout my bookie has more lines and better odds for the player than any other sports book around if you join right now my bookie will match your deposit halfway all the way up to a thousand dollars that means if you deposit two thousand dollars right now right this second you get an extra grand in free money to play with all you have to do is use our promo code blv that's capital blv to activate the offer once again that's promo code blv capital blv to get your extra cash from my bookie now bet win get paid my bookie so with that being said what is up everybody today is friday january 10th 2020 which means it is time for the friday interview of the week presented by my bookie bet win get paid my bookie it's former new york yankees outfielder slade heathcott we'll talk about some of his current projects including more than baseball where he develops and takes care of minor league prospects who have to endure a tough schedule and living conditions of a minor league baseball player it ain't easy ladies and gents we'll talk about why mike franz Sessa has such a hard time pronouncing Slade Heathcott, his tenure with the Yankees, spring training stories, and much more. But I also wanted to get into some current offseason news as well. The Los Angeles Dodgers continue to pursue Mookie Betts in a trade with the Boston Red Sox. We'll talk about the pros and cons of a potential deal that would send the Mookster to Hollywood. We'll talk Don Larson as well. Don Larson, of course, passing away at the age of 90 on January 1st. A ton of great stories out there about Don Larson. We'll get into a few. You know, the Red Sox are now considered cheaters amongst the office of Major League Baseball as well. Join the club, says the Astros and nobody else. Caught for sign stealing in the video replay room in 2018. Their championship season of all seasons. Go figure. All that and more coming your way on episode 139, presented by Belly Up Sports. Remember to use the promo code OSHOW10, that's capital O-S-H-O-W-10, for $10 off your next order using, you guessed it, TickPick.com. You should have used TickPick. And the promo code OSHOW20, if you're into banging weights, eating steaks, and sleeping eights, OSHO20, that's the capital O-S-H-O-W-20, for $20 off your next order at MechaNutritionStore.com. Let's talk off-season baseball right now. Let's go. It is the 10th of January, 2020. A lot has not happened in Major League Baseball during the offseason since probably San Diego at the winter meetings. Garrett Cole signed, Rendon signed, Steven Strasburg signed. The biggest three free agents out there were swept up in San Diego the first week of December. Nothing's happened since. Josh Donaldson still out there. Mookie Betts could get traded. He could not get traded by the Red Sox. David Price also made available. But the Los Angeles Dodgers are in a win-now window and have a pretty flexible budget. They have a ton of prospects to share. The Boston Red Sox are now reportedly looking to stay under the luxury tax threshold and might be headed for a retool, rebuild after what you could say was a disappointing third-place finish in 2019 and are even dangling the idea of trading outfielder Mookie Betts to the Dodgers, which would be a nightmare scenario for baseball fans. Mookie Betts is entering his final year arbitration before he hits free agency. So MLB Trade Rumors projects that he'll earn about $27.7 million this year. He's also a 27-year-old, four-time Gold Glove Award winner. He won the American League MVP honors in 2018 and finished in the top eight in the MVP voting every season since 2016. So that's one, two, three, four, four seasons in a row for Mookie Betts. Betts and Los Angeles 
have, I guess you can say, churned together through the rumor mill. Recently, MLB.com's uh, John Morosi actually reported talks between L.A. and Boston were, quote-unquote, more dynamic than discussions the Dodgers were having with the Cleveland Indians shortstop Francisco Lindor, another under uh, age 30 superstar nearing free agency that the Dodgers are interested in picking up. So the Red Sox are entering a period of transition, of course. The Dodgers are desperate to grab their first title since 1988 after losing the World Series in 2017 to the Astros and 2018 to the Red Sox, although they both cheated, it turns out, so who knows. Uh, They're falling into the eventual uh, champion Washington Nationals last year in the division series. Despite winning 106 games, the most in franchise history, it looked like it was going to be a cakewalk for them on the National League side to win the National League pennant. It was not at all. They didn't even get past their first series. This feels like a fit, but there are definitely pros and cons for the Dodgers acquiring Mookie Betts. So let's examine both of them. One pro for the Dodgers making this deal with Mookie Betts is making a bold win-now play, of course, after coming so close to a ring multiple times in 2017 and 2018. The Dodgers need to get aggressive, and they need to get aggressive now. I mean, ace uh, Clayton Kershaw is showing signs of decline, and while the team has a deep farm system and plenty of talent on the big league roster, this isn't the moment to be timid. Uh, Pairing Mookie Betts with the likes of reigning National League MVP Cody Bellinger and, of course, Justin Turner and everyone else in that lineup could finally push the Dodgers over the top, especially in the National League where they're already over the top. Above all, it would signal to the fan base that President of Baseball Operations Andrew Friedman and company are finally committed to bringing a commissioner's trophy to Southern California at any cost. Another pro, this one for the Red Sox, would be shedding, of course, shedding salary and moving forward. If the Red Sox are in set on ducking under that luxury tax and adding cost-controlled young talent, there's no better trade partner than the Los Angeles Dodgers. I mean, come on. Los Angeles has deep pockets and might take on some or all of the remaining three years and $96 million left on David Price's contract. And as John Morosi speculated, in addition, the Red Sox may be able to pry a top prospect from the Dodgers stack system. Remember, middle infielder Gavin Lux and right-hander Dustin May will likely be off limits, but catcher uh, Kiebert Ruiz, who's LA's number three prospect, according to MLB.com, ascended to AAA at age 21 last season, yet is blocked at the big league level by 2019 breakout Will Smith, who had a great season with the Dodgers, and adding Ruiz to their minor league ranks while, of course, ditching Price's contract and Betts' massive final arbitration payday could give the Boston Red Sox financial flexibility, as well as butting a star being behind the dish. Uh, Granted, Current Red Sox receiver Christian Vasquez, who had a great year, he took a leap forward with 23 home runs in, uh, I think it was like 140, maybe 138 games last season. After hitting only three home runs in 2018, the Red Sox recently signed a capable backup in Kevin Ploiecki all those years with the Mets, remember. But offensively, strong catchers in their early 20s don't come around every day, and Ruiz would be a prize worth snagging if you're the Red Sox in this deal with the Dodgers. A con that you could look at for the Dodgers, both the Red Sox and the Dodgers. First one for the Dodgers, though, rolling the dice on a rental. Sure, Mookie Betts might sign a long-term deal with Los Angeles after 2020, but it's not guaranteed. There's essentially 0% chance that he'd give the Dodgers any kind of discount. And if they take on Price's contract and agree to pay nearly $100 million for a pitcher who posted a 428 ERA and 107 innings pitch last season and will turn 25 in August, or excuse me, 35 in August, it would be good if he turned 25, but he's not. He's turning 35 in August. Plus, surrendering a high-ranked prospect, they would need Mookie Betts to lean them to the promised land. If they get Mookie Betts and take on that deal that Price has, what was a hundred, a uh, hundred million dollars, almost a hundred million dollars, or over a hundred million dollars, they'd have to win the World Series next year. And if they don't do it, then that's a bust. And then Mookie Betts leaves, and it's a complete disaster. You lose Ruiz, your number three prospect. That's not good news if you're the Dodgers. Otherwise, this will look like a desperation hail mary and a stain on uh, not only the Dodgers' record but Friedman's record as baseball ops even if Mookie Betts does end up re-signing. But another con for the Red Sox would be ticking off Red Sox Nation, of course. They're, they're pretty hungry for another title. And after all these cheating allegations, there's more thrown on top. I mean, the Red Sox have won three. 
three titles since they busted the curse of the Bambino in 2004. During that span, they posted a losing record only three times. That was in 2012 with Bobby Valentine, a season that many fans just want to erase from their memories. 2014 with John Farrell after winning the World Series, and then 2015. So they won the World Series. They were first in 2013, then they went to worst in 2014 and 2015, dead last in the AL East. They are a proud club built on tradition of winning, and they just watched the arch-rival New York Yankees break the bank to sign ace Garrett Cole to that nine-year, $324 million contract. If they respond by trading arguably their franchise player for financial considerations and a vague promise to build for the future, many people in Boston, in Beantown, will undoubtedly rebel. It might be a smart move long-term, but it won't pay well in the short term for uh, Mookie Betts, dealing Mookie Betts. The opposite could be said for the Dodgers, obviously. It excite fans now, but they may look back on a Betts trade with, you know, kind of regret if it doesn't result in champagne and confetti, which is what makes this such an intriguing hot stove hypothetical move. And at the end of the day, if they don't want to go after Mookie Betts, they don't have to. They're also in on Francisco Lindor. They obviously have the prospects that both the Indians and the Red Sox like. Uh, I mean, they haven't made any significant moves this offseason outside of signing Blake Trine into that one-year deal worth $10 million, and that could be a sign that the team is bound to make a massive move in the coming days or weeks, for that matter. Or if you look at things with a glass-half-empty approach, this is just a sign that the Dodgers will sit on their hands and not make any sort of significant move this offseason. I mean, personally, I prefer the former just because it makes this fun and not unbearable. It is, it's not like the Dodgers don't have legitimate connections either. The team has reportedly been on in trade talks with Lindor for quite some time with the Indians, although the talks seem to die down after the Corey Kluber trade with Texas. Right after that, Bob Nightingale of USA Today reported, I know it's Bob Nightingale, but he reported that the team had trade discussions with the, uh, the Red Sox for Mookie Betts. So to sweeten the pot, Buster Only of ESPN tweeted on Friday that the high-level executive believe that both Francisco Lindor and Mookie Betts will be traded this winter. As much as optimistic Dodger fans might hope for this, the Dodgers likely are not going to get both of them. So that has led to the discussion if the Dodgers do trade for one of the young All-Stars, which would be the better fit? There are pros and cons regarding both players. We just discussed the Mookie Betts deal, uh, and we've decided to break those down. So Mookie Betts, of course, the pros, high ceiling than Lindor, probably a higher ceiling than Lindor. Cost of trade would be less, although you're probably taking on that David Price contract. And see, it gives the Dodgers a true right-handed bat in that lineup that has, again, the nationally graining MVP, Cody Bellinger. You got Corey Seager, both left-handed bats. Jock Peterson would give you a nice fresh bat to team with Justin Turner on the right side. And then the cons being only one season left under contract for Mookie, even though he might resign. And he had a worse 2019 than Francisco Lindor. So you got to look at that as well. Again, you're probably going to be trading Ruiz, if anything else, and then taking on all that money from David Price. And then, of course, Francisco Lindor, a breakdown here. The pros, obviously, more team control than Mookie Betts has more than one year left on his contract. He's a better postseason hitter than Mookie Betts and existing uh, Dodgers. And he had a better 19 than Mookie Betts. Uh, obviously, the cons asking price will be significantly higher. You don't have to take on as much money, but you're probably going to have to get give up a hall of prospects and he adds to a crowded infield already that has Corey Seager and Justin Turner so again like Mookie Betts it can be hard to find a con for a player that is a like a sensational player like Francisco Lindor but just like Mookie Betts the one con that Lindor has is a very significant one which also could keep a deal from happening I mean the asking price for Francisco Lindor is going to be massive and that's because he has an extra season of team control that, that That is an extra season of production that the Dodgers can get out of Lindor and an extra season that they can work on extension talks and hopefully uh, find that he falls in love with Los Angeles. However, is that one extra year really worth asking for if you're the Dodgers? I mean, the Dodgers would have to give up at least one of their two best prospects in Dustin May or Gavin Lux, and that's not something that the franchise seemingly wants to do. They're not going to be able to package Corey Seager as the main piece because he's set to be a free, uh, free agent at the same time as Lindor, so it would defeat the purpose for the Indians. And if the Dodgers don't trade Seager or Lux, that would create a surplus of players in the infield. So granted, that's not a bad thing to have. Uh, like That's... Pr- 
a pretty good problem to have, and the team could even move Lux to the outfield, which is something that Dave Roberts has alluded to in past press conferences. It also gives the team someone to fill in for Justin Turner once his contract expires after the end of this season. But again, it's only one more guaranteed year than Betts. So Lindor has been the better postseason hitter in his career. He had, I think, a 276 average in, in the postseason, five home runs, 12 RBIs. I think that's in 23 games. He also is a sensational fielder like Betts, but he does not give the Dodgers that traditional right-handed bat that they want. So, yes, Lindor is a switch, uh, switch hitter and is absolutely usable against left-handed pitchers, but he also has shown some troubling signs against Southpaws this year. While Mookie Betts' batting average was also down against lefties in 2019, it wasn't as low as Lindor's, which was down at 258 as a right-handed hitter this year. This is weird as the two previous seasons, it was right-handed pitching that was giving him more trouble, so we really have no way to expect whether he's going to progress or rest on either side of the plate. Regardless, he's still an exceptional player, but the bottom line comes down to the asking price for Lindor. Are the Dodgers willing to trade significantly more for Lindor for only one more guaranteed season? Or will they opt to go the route for Mookie Betts where they're just going to take on David Price's contract and only give up one top prospect? We're going to have to wait and see. But with that being said, I wanted to talk a little bit about Don Larson, Yankee great, uh, of course, passing away on January 1st, 2019 at the age of 90. Of course, Larson's signature career moment came during Game 5 of the 1956 World Series against the then Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, his perfect game was one of the biggest surprises in baseball history. Larson only lasted an inning and two-thirds after being tagged for four runs to start game two of that series against the Dodgers. So surprisingly, I think Casey Stengel was the manager at the time. He gave Don Larson the ball to start game five, and he sure as hell wouldn't regret it. I mean, impeccable control. He ran through the Dodgers lineup that included the likes of Pee Wee Reese and Jackie Robinson with ease. Uh, I don't think he reached one three-ball count. I actually think one batter, I think it was Pee Wee Reese, who reached a three-ball count in that game. His closest scare in that game to losing the perfect game came in the second inning when Jackie Robinson hit a shot that bounced off of uh, then-third baseman Andy Carey's glove and went right to shortstop Gil McDougald, who completed the unlikely assist to retire Jackie Robinson. So it deflected off of Carey's glove into the glove of McDougald. And then Mickey Mantle also prevented a hit when he chased down a Gil Hodges drive in the fifth inning. So with two outs in the ninth, the Dodgers sent pinch hitter Dale Mitchell as their last hope to break Don Larson's perfect game. Mitchell, of course, who was a career 312 hitter at the time, took a 1-2 fastball on the outside of the plate for a called strike three. He checked swing, but it was a called strike three. And then, of course, that ensuing image of Yogi Berra leaping into Don Larson's embrace is one of the most iconic, iconic pictures from baseball's golden era. And, of course, Barra and Larson remained linked throughout their entire retirement as they traveled the country, attending memorabilia shows, uh, countless interviews, countless autograph signings. Uh, he was born August 7th, 1929 in Michigan City, Indiana. Larson's parents moved to San Diego when he was a teenager. He became a baseball star and a basketball star at Point Loma High School. Uh, turning down multiple college baseball and basketball scholarships to sign with the St. Louis Browns in 1947. He slowly made his way through the Browns minor league system until uh, the United States Army drafted him for the military service in 1951, where he served in the Korean War for two years, getting discharged, uh, uh, discharged right before 1953 spring training. So Larson pitched well enough to join the Browns for their last season in St. Louis, that's when he started the first of his 14 Major League seasons. And while Larson's control allowed for his record-setting World Series performance, he did struggle with his command during his entire career, posting a 81-91 overall record with seven different teams, which included a 21-loss season. That's right, 21-loss season with uh, the 1954 Baltimore Orioles. So despite his control problems, team valued his willingness to take the ball both as a starter and a reliever. And Larson's athletic ability shined at 
at the plate as well. He hit 14 career home runs, appearing often as a pinch hitter, even playing twice in the outfield. Uh, he finished his big league career in 1967 and spent one more season in the minors before finally hanging it up in 1968, where he eventually settled in for 25 years as a salesman for the Blake Moffitt and Town Paper Company in San Jose, California. And then on July 18, 1999, Don Larson was invited to Yankee Stadium for Yogi Berra Day to celebrate their 1956 World Series masterpiece. Uh, he threw out the first pitch to Berra, stayed for the entire game, and it's lucky that he did because he watched David Cohn make history pitching a perfect game after Larson finished commemorating his own earlier in the day. So Don Larson was also a fixture at Yankees Old Timers Day, drawing tremendous attention every time he graced the field. I got to see him in 2016 for Old Timers Day. And then as time progressed, Larson slowly became the last surviving player from both the Dodgers and the Yankees perfect game lineups. He also gained attention as one of the few remaining Browns alumni, attending most of their recent reunion in August of 2019. And he even though Larson spent the next 60-plus years entertaining questions about his shining moment, he never grew tired of telling the story. I mean, he enjoyed the adulation and being well enough to travel in his 80s to connect with his adoring fans. He said, I didn't ask for all of this. That's what he said in an interview in 2017. It came with the territory, and I try to treat it as such. I've enjoyed meeting a lot of nice people and having fun. It's important to live a little if your health is okay. So... That's the story of Don Larson, again, dead at the age of 90. Still the only pitcher in Major League Baseball history to throw a perfect game in the World Series. He's one of two pitchers to throw a no-hitter in a playoff game. Roy Halladay joining him in 2010, throwing a no-hitter against the Cincinnati Reds at Citizens Bank Park for the Philadelphia Phillies. Halladay and Larson both no longer with us at the time, which is sad to think about. So Don Larson... Again, Yankees pitcher who threw the only World Series perfect game in history dies at the age of 90. Speaking of the Yankees, though, we're going to talk to Yankees outfielder Slade Heathcott here in a moment. Again, talking more than baseball, why Mike Francesa can't pronounce his name to save his life. A few of uh, some insane stories during his spring training days early on in the minor league system for the Yankees down in Tampa Bay, Florida. All that and more, but first, a quick word from TickPick. It's basically what we've been doing lately. Like, why the desire now to become a pilot? And how's flight school been going? It's good. Um, honestly, uh, before I knew baseball was a reality, I wanted to fly. It's been a passion of mine for a very long time. Um, as cheesy as that, I watched Top Gun as a child and I was hooked. So I've always had a passion for it. And in 2012, when I was in Tampa at high A, I, um, I actually went through my private course then. So I've actually had my private license since 2012, but I've always known that I wanted to pursue flying whenever the time came that I would be done. So uh, just, I finished up my instrument rating a couple weeks ago, about to finish up my commercial and then head off to CFI school. So got about eight weeks left, it's going good. It's a uh, fast pace. So I think I've, oh, I guess I've been going for about eight weeks now. So I've got about eight to ten weeks left, and, and I'll be out doing the things that I want to do and see where it leads. And, like, was there, like, any specific reason for it, or just, like, you were just always just interested in flying? I just loved it, man. I did, a, like, an introductory flight uh, when I was really young, like, my freshman year in high school. And I just, I loved it. I loved the flying. I loved the idea. Um, now it's kind of evolved. I'm not 100% sure how, but I know at some point, Somehow, since I'm stubborn enough not to give up on things, right. I, uh, I want to fly in an effort uh, in some facet, whether it's on the side or even everything that I do. But I, I want to fly in efforts to raise money for uh, the nonprofit that I founded and uh, eventually a uh, children's home and community center somewhere. Well, that's all. Tell me a little bit about that. How's that going for you? It's going great, man. Um, everything's kind of, I've been very fortunate thus far. Everything's been 
falling in place and I've had some really incredible people step up. Uh, one of them, obviously I've been working on the, I've tried to think of the best way to put it. And, uh, so I have, I have three nonprofits that I work with or have been a part of starting. We have I am more.us. Uh, it's a children's foundation that me, John Ryan, Catherine Liebrin, uh, Leslie and Murph's mother, Carolina, and a couple other people founded back in 2014 to just instill the fact that we're always more than our current situation and centered around children with what we call special opportunities, um, disabilities and sicknesses, whether it be cancer or something they were born with or something they came. But the idea is that we just we stay connected, we create parachutes in the cities that they're in and just instill the fact that we are more than the situation we're in. Um, we meet Jeremy Wolf, Simon, and Riker um, started more than baseball.org, so the minor league nonprofit, which has been really getting going, and now we're working with uh, three or four teams right now, um, two more that I'm working on as well, but working on camp, anywhere from community outreach. Um, building relationships with teams and the MLB. We've been in talk with the commissioner's office and the MLBPA um, just in regards and keeping them up to date with what we're doing and trying to get the word out to players that, you know, we're here to help. We're not trying to fight the tides and, you know, go against owners and things of that nature. But instead, let's bring everybody together. Let's bring the fans in. Let's bring, um, you know, all of our pieces, ownerships and players and teams and let's, let's put our efforts to raise awareness. Let's put our efforts to do events that will um, grow a fan base as well as give minor leaguers opportunities to make more money off the field to be able to um, support their dreams on the field. And I, I, we truly believe that if we can um, take some of the challenges and worries that minor leaguers have to do to put food on the table and to support their families, that they will in return be better baseball players. And that's our main goal with Ward Baseball is to be able to facilitate the growth of players, not only on the field, but more importantly off the field, because we truly believe that the, the better men we are, the better players we are. And I experienced it in my own life in 2014, 2015. And it just does uh, something that I truly believe in and that we've uh, been working with and just trying to be creative and get out of the box and figure out ways to do events that people wouldn't nearly uh, normally do and create memories. I think that people pay for memories and we'd rather create a memory instead of just asking for funds and things of that nature to support um, minor leaguers and their goals and ambitions. So really trying to uh, be that advocate for minor leaguers, whether on the field or off the field. Um, and then the one that I've really been working on in terms of just me getting it up going and now I'm up to 29 people actually helping me on it as we are one village and the goal is to have a we are one village community center and uh, children's home or orphanage and I, I really loved uh, Brian Ingram uh, our buddy of mine had um, the we are one village already up and going and we kind of grew up we met with Planet with Chris Dickerson and his initiative to kind of clean up the planet, be eco-friendly and things of that nature. And we brought players to the planet and we are one village underneath green.org, which is the domain we obtained last month, which was huge first in our initiative. So we want to make it an eco-friendly marketplace for people and, and really countries to access to technology. Um, from Green.org, we'll take funds and funnel it into Prayer for the Planet, and we're one village to drive the initiatives that we're working on. So, working on a big project in the DR with plastic cleanup and trying to get MLB on board and maybe Nike on board and some other things of that nature to, uh, you know, bring awareness and create jobs. I partnered with Plastic Bank. Uh, the CEO is David Katz, and we've been um, talks with him a lot, and we're getting really close to. Um, getting those stages or we're finalizing the last number of the business plan and things of that nature. So uh, hopefully if we can implement Plastic Bank down in the DR, we will create thousands of jobs immediately and be able to allow for people to, you know, go out and earn three or four dollars a day to supplement their fourteen dollars a week they have and use that, that currency from IBM Watson's blockchain to purchase social plastic uh, companies that have created goods and products that 
are using recycled plastic instead of creating new plastic, as well as healthcare and food and water. So we're really excited about that. And we have some projects uh, we're working on down there with beach cleanups and things of that nature, and some more things that will roll out in time that can't really discuss just yet. But really excited about that. So it's been. Yeah, I've been quite busy, to say the least. Yeah, that, that explains why you're so busy right there. I mean, I have the site up right now, morethanbaseball.org, building uh, our pastimes future right here. And, of course, minor league ball, I would know nothing about it. You would know way more about it than I would. It's no joke from what I hear. That kind of leads me to my next question. I wanted you to talk about your experience in uh, high school baseball because I know uh, from what I read it wasn't an easy experience growing up. But how quickly did you make the transition from high school ball to being drafted by the Yankees in 09? Because going from high school baseball straight to the pros in a single A is no joke. Um, yeah, so I was drafted late in 2000, or middle of 2009. I ended up not signing until late of 2009. I was very fortunate enough to get drafted the day before state championship, and then we ended up uh, turning around the next day in high school and winning the 4A state championship in Texas. So that was really awesome. Um, and just to be able to spend that with that team that I had and family that that I considered, you know, like baseball was my life, baseball team was my family at a time that I was, you know, living out of my truck or bouncing from house to house. Uh, you know, the guys on the team were my family, so to be able to share that with them was really awesome. You know, I remember getting to Round Rock and getting into the hotel and getting a call from David Oppenheimer saying that they were going to draft me uh, as their first pick. Uh, we just don't describe moments like that. So, you know, we had a lot of fun. I was uh, even in the transition into pro ball. Um, you know, we signed late, and uh, coming from a small town, my thought process, I didn't have anything else for baseball. So my perspective was nothing anywhere close to what it was now. My, my perspective was about the party. It was about having fun. Um, and, you know, I made a lot of decisions that people think are mistakes and things of that nature, but I truly believe they were lessons and I wouldn't change up any of them just because of the perspective I have sitting right now. So, um, you know, the transition was, at the time, I didn't, I think I was too young and naive to realize, but it was a big transition from, from going to play every couple of weeks to having the responsibility of, of, you know, managing my own time and profession as it, it wasn't just a game anymore, but it was also my job. So... I made that transition, uh, and uh, over time, I got better at it. And you know, we just we have to take the the steps that we do, and, and no matter how much we look back, it doesn't really help us in terms of where we're going. So we always got to focus on right now. It took me a very long time to uh, realize that and have the respect for what baseball really is. I don't think I really respected the what it took to become a big leaguer until that 2014 offseason after six or seven surgeries and the challenges I had faced and both on the field and off the field. It just, it took a while for those things to really um, transpire and turn into who I am now, but I'm also very thankful for those challenges. I'm very thankful for each surgery because when I signed, I was I was slayed the baseball player and um, the last couple of years of me playing kind of took away the pressure of I didn't, you know, when I first started, I didn't have anything else besides baseball. I, I didn't have anything else in my life that seemed like it was, uh, that was my purpose or my calling. And I think each surgery and each decision and each uh, day that went by got me closer and closer to where I am now, and I'm very thankful for that. Oh, 100%. You live and you learn, um, obviously. Some good experiences growing up, some not good experiences, but you learn from both of them, and obviously you've turned it around in what you're doing right now it's phenomenal work shifting gears here just because i'm a big tattoo guy you got a lot of tattoos on your arms <laughs> reasoning and symbol or yeah reasonings and symbols behind them uh one on my you know my right arm i have a tribal that is called being 18 year old and being able to make your own decisions <laughs> nice um, underneath both of my my arms i have for the love of the game uh, that goes from my right arm to my left arm. I have Psalms 143 on my chest, and it says, Oh, Lord, hear my prayer. And it was David's prayer in church, or uh, in jail. Uh, he was just talking about having a new beginning and a new start. And in 2010, I kind of took that step, and I uh, was the first step in terms of <clears throat> changing my perspective and kind of turning and changing the path that I was headed down on. 
nowhere close to where I need to be and honestly will never be to that point because I always want to be in pursuit of that and to always be growing but and then the one on my left arm I, I will go to the one on my ribs I have one on my ribs and it meant a lot to me and still does still does due to the fact that it says in all the in a race all the runners run so run in such a way you'll be victorious and that's always been my my thing Colossians 3.23 do it with all your heart glorify the name of the Lord not for men and I, I believe that I'm just not a half halfway person when I do something I'm all in and anybody that's seen me play will understand that anybody that knows me on and off the field knows that that's who I am I'm I'm obsessively passionate is what I like to call and I'm thankful for that because I, you know, it keeps me motivated and takes that nature and it teaches me. You know, there's plenty of times where I, uh, I'm all in on something and you know it doesn't work or or I fall on my face or I trip and fall or whatever it might be. It, it teaches me lessons along the way, so I'm not scared to fail. And I think that's huge um, in terms of not only success but just in life. We, I think we shelter people from and kids in particular from failing and it robs them of the opportunity of learning who they are as a person. So uh, that's always been big with me. And my, my left arm, my sleeve, um, is why I go about everything that I do and how I go about it. And, and the, the message I'm trying to leave. And on the outside, I have a eagle. Um, I'm always, uh, you know, I, I'm an American. I'm, I'm proud Absolutely. of it. I love the uh, civilization of the eagle. Um, I will also say that, you know, I, by no means do I think that we have it figured out and I'm doing work in, you know, five different countries and I do plan on my elephant being out of the United States, but it's overlooking a boy saluting his father's grave at Arlington Cemetery and I put that on my inside my forum so that any time I could always look down and see it and just realize that people out there have paid the ultimate sacrifice, that there's children out there and there's family out there that is, is missing a loved one because that loved one was there fighting for the cause and, or for me to be able to be where I am, whether I support the war or not is beside the point because men and women have, have gone over and, and shed blood and shed tears and spent time away from family to be able to allow me to be here in the United States doing what I do on a daily basis so it's a reminder for me to why I have to be all out that's why I have to not stop and, and when times get tough I can't quit I have to keep going and uh, below that I have uh, two dog tags with no names on them uh, just another symbolization of anyone that's paid the ultimate price um, moving up I have the skyline of New York I have the New York City skyline, and it has the twin towers missing, but has the beams moving or flowing up, and in the reflection in the Hudson are the twin towers, and it's just a symbolization as well as the new Freedom Tower. But it's just a symbolization that, you know, the, the past is the past. We have to move on. We have to move forward, most of all. We don't have to forget about the past, but we do have to move forward, and we, uh, you know, we have to continue to grow up. And then it's just the American flag flowing into my chest. And on my chest, I have the Army Ranger Memorial. My uncle is an Army Ranger and has been for 17 years. And there's been several people in my family that have served. So my uncle is somebody I really look up to. And I felt like it needed to be over my heart and a reminder every time I looked in the mirror to exactly why I have to keep going. That, that's awesome. And a lot of tattoos, a lot of symbols there. You talk about the Psalms a little bit. Were you, like, you mentioned like earlier on in your career, big into partying and stuff. Were you always religious? Because I know a lot of people um, went through times like when they were younger, weren't really religious at all. Like they went to church when they were kids, didn't really put a whole lot of effort into it. And then they go through some life-changing experiences. And then all of a sudden they find God, they find peace within themselves. Is that what happened to you? Yeah, I think there was always a big gap and I tried filling it with a lot of things. And, you know, I think we loosely use the word religious and I think we use Christianity a lot or whatever it might be. And I say I'm a believer. Um, you know, my, my belief might be different than you. 
but that you know bringing it back to we are one village that's why i love one village because regardless of who we are where we are in life we're all here together we're all connected and it's about time we start asking like it because we're all going to have different views we're always going to have different opinions and tastes and whatever it might be but it doesn't mean we don't have to have respect and, and as a society we've gotten to a point where we feel like we have to climb over people instead of just pushing everybody up and when we push everybody else up we bring ourselves up in the uh, in the same process and you know, i i i try to instill at everything that i do and everybody that i put around me whether on the boards uh, that i'm on or the nonprofits or business things that i'm working on that is a common theme among everyone that i'm associated with and i think that's very important i think it comes to getting back to who we are um, as as people and realizing that for our own betterment, we have to create a sustainable ecosystem. We have to create a sustainable economy that doesn't just help a few, but it helps everybody. That there's a way to that everybody can benefit, and in return, in the long run, in the bigger picture, we all benefit more because of that. I read an article the other day um, playing with uh, Austin Romine, Arizona Fall League. When you guys were younger, you always said, like like you just mentioned, you laid laid it all out. You gave it 100. percent You don't. You're never like the half full type guy like you said um he basically put it like you played like every game was game seven of the world series like what was your fire behind uh being playing every game like it was game seven of the world series and are you still like that with stuff with some of the stuff are you doing now and why are you always so tense i'm always like that and the reason is it's on my left arm my tattoo how many, how many single mothers out there are working two or three jobs? How many families are out there working two or three jobs or single dads um, or just individuals making ends meet? Um, it, it's completely disrespectful of me to waste my time or to be in something halfway when they're out there busting their ass and doing everything they possibly can. So it's more of respecting the people that are on this planet with me. It's about respecting the game of baseball. I believe that's how it was made to play. And, you know, we never know when that, you know, we can always say this and you hear people say it all the time, but it's true. We, we never know when our time's done. You know, I could, I could walk outside and, and something happened in, in an hour from now. We don't know. And my biggest thing is I always want to whenever my time comes and whenever that time comes i'll be ready but i also want to know that i didn't waste any moments and you know we're not perfect and there's times that i get lazy and there are times that i fail and whether i'm a believer or not i'm nowhere close to being perfect and i have more flaws than anybody but i'm an open book about those flaws and and you know, I try to show extreme humility in all that I do because none of us are perfect and we all struggle with different things. I struggle with something that you might struggle with differently, but me being able to share what I struggle with, maybe there's somebody else out there that can relate. Maybe we can help each other. And that's kind of the approach I try to take with everything. So you said you were going to work out after this. How, t how intense are your workouts? What do you got today? Hey, they haven't been near as intense, I'll be honest with you. Um, you know, just with time now, it's just about maintaining, but I do plan. Um, I'm starting to plan some things and running. I did a half marathon not too long ago, uh, and I'm shifting my perspective. So I'm now going to not preface with what I would normally say, and I'm just going to say I am a runner, and I'm working at being a better runner. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely very, um, you know, two people that are on my board of We Are One Village is Charlie Engel and a guy named Andre Cashley. And Andre was hit by a train, lost his lower leg, and just decided to devote his life to showing that same thing as the Iron Morris, just being an overcomer, that we're more than the situation we're in. So he actually ended up crossing the United States on a hand bike um, in a little over 12 days, so 3,140 miles in 12 days. Uh, the other guy that, or one of the other gentlemen that are on my board is, is Charlie Engel, and he founded water.org with Matt Damon. Well, Charlie Engel ran 111 days nonstop, covering a little over 50 miles a day, so about 5,000 miles in 111 days uh, across the Sahara Desert. And we're doing, we're working on a platform right now for those two. They're doing a 5.8 deck. And the whole, the whole scheme of it is the lowest to the highest points on Earth, only 5.8 miles separated. And it's just a symbolization that we are here in the lows and the highs in, in life, 
doesn't mean that it has to determine where we're headed or the past determines where we're headed, but that we can always be on a path up and we can always be on a path to greatness. So they are going to go and, you know, I'm going to train and do what I can to attend whatever parts of the journey that I'm able to attend. Uh, because climbing is something that I really want to get into. I really want that climbing Everest to be kind of the last event I do or one of the events I do to raise funds for the, the orphanage. Um, but they are going to go from the lowest to the highest points on all seven continents. Um, and Andre's going to do it with exactly the way he is right now, as strong as he is right now. And he's going to be facing a lot of obstacles and challenges, and, and especially with the rock climbing portion. But we're going to figure out a way to do it and make it happen, and it'll be a world record feat for them. That, that'd be insane. And it's really cool to see how all these projects that you're doing kind of all correlate with each other, all helping each other out. But you uh, made your 20, so in 2015, you made your MLB debut with the Yankees, correct? Correct. And then, so I guess my next question is, A, who was your greatest mentor growing up in the game of baseball? And B, who, who gave you the best advice during that 2015 season when you were up in the Bronx, because you had a lot of uh, leaders on that team. You had Alex Rodriguez still there, Mark Teixeira, Brian McCann. I honestly couldn't tell you just one person. There were so many people in that locker room that really stood up. Brett Gardner was one of my favorite. Brian McCann is an awesome guy that really helped out. Alex and Carlos Beltran, two of the smartest guys I know in terms of baseball IQ, always ready to do, to dedicate their time to younger players. And you know, I, we saw a big shift in Alex's personality and and the way he approached things after the uh, 2014 season. So that was really awesome. And seeing those guys dedicate time, I spent a lot of time around them. Um, Dylan Patanzas, CC Sabathia, these guys spent a lot of time um, mentoring guys and be able to see that. Um, I don't know if I had a baseball role model in terms of a baseball player, but definitely through my professional career, being able to see how Jeter handled himself uh, really made an impact more so off the field than on. Um, and I think the off the field ended up relating back to on the field, but seeing his consistency and how he went about everything every day and how him and, and guys like him and Mo uh, became my two favorite players in baseball history because, you know, they would you would always see them talking with younger players, always giving back and, and showing that, you know, if, if those two guys can do it or if these 10 guys that were in that locker room such high quality and not only players but individuals if they if they can donate or if they can dedicate their time to other people and serve other people then why can't we all so i think those were i think there were so many influential people in my life in 2015 in terms of the baseball field that um it just was it was huge rob thompson the bench coach uh, one of my favorite people in the world um guys like that 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 stood up for something bigger than just themselves but the the overall picture really instilled a lot of lessons in my life and then of course what i remember what most yankee fans remember that 2015 season was the home run you hit in september in tampa bay uh three run homer the other way brett gardner even said that you almost blew him up like almost injured half the team you talk about the intensity how exciting was it to come through in that situation at the time given it was like in right in the middle of a pennant race that's what every kid dreams of any baseball player that's ever stepped foot on the field has dreamed of moments like that that's why we play that's why that's why we want to be out there so just the moment itself is awesome but what really got me fired up even more so than I probably would have been was when I rounded second base and I saw the dugout the way it was. Um, you know, even to this day, I still it still gives me chills and still a moment that I'll never forget and a moment that I wish that I had a thousand times over. But, um, you know, my calling in life is to something else. And, you know, if that, that moment is my highlight in baseball, I'm okay with that because my life is, is you know, I tell people that, you know, the truth is I, I retired because I, I wasn't good enough to have an offer here, and I'm okay with that. I'm completely okay with that, and I'm, I'm comfortable with that, and I'm, and I'm at peace with that. And the biggest reason why is I felt like my life had a bigger calling or just a different calling. I, I felt like my life is nothing makes me happier than serving people and being able to be in a position that I am and being able to be setting up operations and, and organizations and events to help minor league players, to help children, to help people all around the world. Um, nothing makes me happier, so I, I really retired 
um, selfishly because I just felt like there was there was something else calling my name. And sure enough, there was. And then you, after you left the Yankees, you were kind of moving around in the A system, Giants, White Sox. Tell me a little bit about those experiences. Did you enjoy those towards the end of your career? I did. You know, I think the game really shifted. I, I've always enjoyed the game of baseball, even uh, to this day. You know, I. I can't say that there's, I definitely miss playing in the big leagues. I don't know if I miss playing in the minor leagues near as much, but, um, you know, I've always loved the game of baseball. I've always loved playing the game of baseball, even with all of its trials and, and mental um, fortitude that it takes and to persevere through the ups and downs in baseball. I've always loved it and always enjoyed it. Um, and, you know, I, I retired, but, and I'm done playing the game, but I'm nowhere close to being done with the game of baseball. And I want to use the game of baseball as a vessel to show the world that when the baseball community comes together, look what we can do. And we can use a baseball platform. We can use players and impact thousands and thousands of lives of people in the DR. And we'll take it from the DR and we'll go to Puerto Rico. And we'll take it from Puerto Rico and we'll keep expanding to show the world that this is what happens. We all might be different. We might all have different opinions and different tastes and different paths and we might even be competing against each other in the same sphere but doesn't mean we don't we can't work together in the in the biggest picture of, of mankind and humanity and of course after you're done with baseball you say you have a calling to do this you have more than baseball amongst your other organizations that you're starting including getting into flight school so what does a day in the life of slate heathcott entail with flight school your organizations still around the game of baseball like what time do you get up in the morning like you got to go to the gym like you obviously like really don't have much downtime on top of you know having a family being a father number one the number one thing in my life is and will always be and one of the biggest and is the most influential part of my life is i'm a father first and foremost um so i have my son 50 percent of the time so it just depends my schedule. It could be different. Sometimes I normally once a week, I pretty much stay up overnight to get work done, uh, especially when I have my son. I don't want to ever take away from my time with my son and family things and stuff of that nature. I will never sacrifice that. So in order to make that happen and make all the other things happen, sometimes I'm up until three. Sometimes I don't go to sleep. Sometimes I stay up until two. I'm not ever really in bed before midnight, honestly, or probably two is probably a better guesstimate of that. And I can, I'm just able to get a lot of work done and they're studying I'm doing. I'm also trying to complete my college degree and aeronautics degree with a minor in aerial operations. Uh, so a normal day just depends. If I fly, if I had my son and I fly at 7.15, I'm, I'm up at 5.30 and and getting my son ready to go to school and things of that nature so I can drive him up north. I normally, I take a lot of phone calls in the car, um, business meetings because I'm in the car for two to four hours a day depending on traffic, depending on if I'm taking my son to school. So I'm in the school a lot, so if I or in my car a lot, so I watch a lot of videos or listen to a lot of videos. Um, with aviation to be able to compact as much knowledge as I can there so that way I don't fall behind with as fast paced as it is. Um, I'm taking phone calls at all times at night. Like tonight I don't have my son, so I have two other calls after this and just got off with a call. And uh, I, I flew from 1 to 4 o'clock today and I had a meeting at 9 o'clock this morning and then a call at 9.45 that took about an hour and a half. And I studied in between and was up at 5.30 this morning. And I'll go work out after this one and take my calls after I work out after that. So it really just depends. Uh, I normally am working for 16, 18 hours a day probably. Uh, anybody could do that, right? Man, oh, man. That's crazy. Crazy. Uh, I mean, so many of us do. Yeah. I mean, if you put your mind to it, obviously, and you're proving that right now. Uh, no question. Just before you go, I just have two more things uh, I want to get to. Both just humorous to me because the first one is kind of just the thing we do on this podcast kind of a ritual it's kind of a segment and until i figure out a better name it's called story time where basically uh myself as well as my guests just tell like a bizarre story where you're just caught in some precarious situation or like even like an embarrassing story uh i'm sure you have many uh, as do i so what do you got oh man i already know where to start i guess i would shed light on the decisions i was making just to shed light on where i was in my thought process um right after i signed fortunate to be in the first rounder 
I was a bouncer in Tampa right after that. So I was a bouncer at bars, and my thought process was, well, if I'm going to drink, I might as well get paid for it. So I was a bouncer, and there was times that, you know, one time we went out partying all night. I woke up, got to the airport, but I was blacked out, hammered, drunk, and I had dropped my passport, or at least I thought I had. When I came back to the, the hotel, obviously the Yankees had already found out about it. Uh, my passport was just sitting right there on the bed, nice and neat on top. So that's a that was a weird, weird moment in terms of just where I was, and obviously that shed light. Had to go to AA meetings and things of that nature. Uh, so that's one of them. Shoot, let's. Oh yeah, that's just where I was, and you know, I, my first spring training, I was sleeping. I think I slept through three or four games my first week week and a half and i still to this day don't know ron dog ended up waking me up in my bedroom of a gated community and to this day i still don't know how he got in there <laughs> so, yeah, so i used to i used to have to take breathalyzers every day before i got walked on the field um i was uh i was enjoying the handle uh, i mean yeah you live and you learn but like you literally slept through three or four games like that you were supposed to be at in tampa Oh yeah! Wow! Yeah, I would I would get home until five or six, and I would be drinking all night, or just sleep through the alarm. Uh, sometimes it wasn't that I was drinking or drunk, just sometimes it was just I slept through the alarm. I was up until four or five or six o'clock, and I would fall asleep instead of getting the field in at, at that time. So, just uh, a lot of choices that that I look back on now, and I know that I need to share, so then they can help other people. Absolutely. I mean, that's a good story right there. Just because I told it on the last podcast that I did, I'll tell you just because you know the guy. Uh, last year, it was like Mother's Day. Um, and again, not to waste your time, but on Mother's Day, I was uh, I was working in the uh, production truck for uh, ESPN Sunday Night Baseball. I was a uh, guest services and like ticket salesperson for the Arizona Diamondbacks. And of course, A-Rod does Sunday Night uh, Baseball now with Vaskersian and Jessica Mendoza. And my my basically my job was to get them in there safe and sound and uh, make sure nothing happened to them. So they get in. I lock the door behind me. My shift's basically done, and I really have to go pee. So there's a porta potty right across the uh, right across the um, street from the production truck. So I go in there. I go pee, and like you know, like your worst fear when you're in like a public bathroom is someone just walking in on you. And uh, so someone opens the door. I'm just like, uh, someone's in here. He's like, oh shit, sorry. And I'm like, oh, my God, that was Alex Rodriguez. And I'm like, what am I going to say? Like, that was kind of weird. And I get out. Uh, I'm like, oh, Mr. Rodriguez, I'm so sorry. He kind of just slaps me on my chest. He's like, hey, man, at least it wasn't Jennifer. So at least there's that. So that, that was my mother's day with Alex Rodriguez in a porta potty um, hey, there you go. <laughs> at least I'll have that for the rest of my life. Um, yeah. <laughs> And then the one last thing before I let you go work out, you need that intense workout. I don't know if you've ever seen this. I didn't even see this until today, just looking up content to talk about. Uh, it had to be 2014, 2015, right around the time you were called up, maybe even before then, uh, just because everybody loves making fun of this guy. Mike Francesa was on his show talking about who and who couldn't the Yankees call up. Have you seen this before? I have, actually. I don't even know if you could hear it through the phone. But it's... I thought it was just a loop, to be honest. I'm like, oh my god, he's actually just muffing this for like 25 seconds straight. Yeah. It's not that hard of a name. Well, no, Mike has to be Mike, so he's got to do something to... Uh... Something that people are going to talk about. So I guess that's what he chose that day. Unbelievable. I guess I should have hit more homers. It's an exciting time of the year for sports, ladies and gents. Sophomore sensation Lamar Jackson is redefining what it means to be a dual-threat quarterback in the National Football League. Odds on Lamar Jackson to win the MVP race were at 50-1 to 1 to begin the season and have since plummeted, making my bookie's prop selection more attractive than ever. And then on the 14th, we had one of the most stacked UFC cards in a long time. Three championship fights, all highly anticipated right in the betting capital of the world in Las Vegas, Nevada. And without a 
doubt, people are going to be looking to get in on the action. We have the best place for you to go. My bookie. If you're the kind of guy who likes to bet a little to win a lot, try a parlay. For instance, if you like a couple of the big favorites this week, parlays are perfect because they let you bet multiple games together for a much bigger payout. MyBookie has more lines and better odds for the player than any other sports book around. If you're looking to join right now, I'm talking right now, MyBookie will match your deposit halfway all the way up to $1,000. So that means if you deposit $2,000, you'll get an extra grand in free money to play with right now. All you have to do is use our promo code BLV. That's capital BLV to activate the offer. Once again, that promo code is capital BLV to get your extra cash from MyBookie. Bet, win, get paid, MyBookie. Great chat with Slade Heathcott. Remember, you could follow Slade on the Twitter at Heathcott underscore Slade. That's Heathcott underscore Slade on Twitter. And remember to also follow More Than Baseball. Great organization there at mtb underscore org that's mtb underscore org on twitter to go follow more than baseball with that being said the boston red sox are in a little bit of trouble so major league baseball says it's going to investigate allegations of the boston red sox illegally using their video replay room to steal signs between opposing pitchers and catchers during their 2018 world series championship season the claims were made last tuesday in a report by the athletic the website cited three anonymous sources that said that the red sox during their 2018 season said some players visited the replay room during games to get information on sign sequences so those sources told the athletic that the red sox weren't able to do it during the postseason because of in-person monitors used by major league baseball during those postseason games so the red sox despite cheating every now and then you could say during the the regular season when it came time for the postseason they beat up on the 100 win yankees they beat up on the 100 win astros and they beat up on the 100 win dodgers to win that world series so they earned the world series but a source who was with that red sox team in 2018 didn't downplay the actions he says it's cheating the person who told the athletic because if you're using a camera to zoom in on the crotch of the catcher to break down the sign system and then take that information and give it out to the runner, then he doesn't have to steal it. Major League Baseball said it would commence an investigation into this matter. The commissioner made it clear in uh, September 15th, 2017 to clubs how seriously he would take any future violation of the regulations regarding use of electric equipment or even the inappropriate use of the video replay room and given these allegations major league baseball will commence an investigation into this matter this is what the league said in a statement so the red sox said that they will cooperate with major league baseball as they look into the allegations um we were recently made aware of the allegations suggesting the inappropriate use of their video replay room this is what the red sox said in a statement on tuesday we take these allegations seriously and they will fully cooperate with major league baseball as they investigate the matter so this incident that prompted mlb's 2017 warning from uh still the commissioner rob manfred to teams came after the red sox were fined uh an indisclosed sum for sending electronic communications from their video replay room to an athletic trainer in the dugout during an august 2017 series against the new york yankees so the new york times reported that uh, gm brian cashman yankees gm brian cashman filed a complaint with the commissioner's office regarding that incident, which included the video. And the newspaper said it showed a member of Boston's training staff looking at his Apple Watch in the dugout and relaying a a message to players. So Manfred said, this is the commissioner speaking, Rob Manfred said, at the time that, that the future violations would be subject to more serious sanctions, including possible loss of draft picks, he said last month that he has the authority to to lay down even larger penalties the latest allegations against the red sox came after the athletic reported last month that the astros allegedly stole signs during home games during their 2017 world series championship season by using a camera position in center field uh boston manager now alex cora was the bench coach for the houston astros in 2017 and has spoken with major league baseball he's declined further comment on the matter but you got to think alex cora is involved in both now that this red sox allegation has come up given that he was the bench coach in 2017 for the astros then goes to boston and now there's more cheating allegations 
allegations with the Red Sox. And CBS Boston reported that in 2018 that the Red Sox and Astros caused a stir during the ALCS that season when an Astros employee was kicked out of an area at Fenway Park during Game 1. Uh, and this was uh, UNH, University of New Hampshire sports law professor Michael McCann, who told CBS Sports Boston, and I quote, stealing signs was traditionally seen as a skill set. The question is going to be whether or not baseball is going to do enough to stop it. But with that being said, the Red Sox sign stealing investigation is not nearly as severe as the Houston Astros. Not not even close. So the, the, the Red Sox could only utilize their their sign stealing ability when they had a runner on second base. So they'd have someone from the video replay room go in, check out the signs, and then go back into the dugout, relay it to the players. And then when a runner got on second base, he'd know the pitch tendencies, whether it's fastball, curveball, slider, whatever pitch is coming, so that he can relay it to the hitter when he's on second base. Because the hitter can obviously see the runner at second base when he's at home plate going one-on-one with the pitcher. The Astros, on the other hand, were blatantly banging a bat or banging a garbage can with a bat to signify whether it was a fastball or an off-speed pitch because they had a hidden camera on the field, in center field, which is completely illegal. So the Astros, obviously, they say Jeff Passan of ESPN reported that a ban or a, a penalty is going to get thrown down by Rob Manfred in the next two weeks. I think it's going to be basically all management. A.J. Hinch is going get, to get the ax. Uh, he's going to get a hefty suspension. We'll see if Alex Cora gets anything considering he was a bench coach for that team as well as the current manager for the Red Sox where there's more cheating allegations. Even if they're much less significant, he was still a part of it. You got to think that he was a part of the Astros scandal as well. Uh, uh, Jim Crane, the owner of the Astros, he's going to get suspended. Jeff Lunau, the GM of the Astros, he's going to get suspended. I don't think any of the players are going to get hurt in this instance. It's going to be all management and front office when it comes to the Astros as well as maybe a possible ban from the postseason, which I'd love to see. The Astros getting banned from at least one postseason in 2020. But we'll see what happens with the Houston Astros in a few weeks again. I expect A.J. Hinch to be uh, fined and suspended. Jim Crane fined and suspended. As well as Jeff Lunau, the general manager of the Astros. Now when it comes to the Red Sox, less significant. Still considered cheating. Although in the coming years, we'll see if that's considered cheating. If anything, just move the video. So the video replay room is right next to the dugout. It's it's in the walkway going back to the clubhouse. Why not move the video replay room up into a press box or even back into the clubhouse where someone can't just literally open up a door and walk into the dugout and relay messages? That's what I don't understand. If it's positioned back to the clubhouse or even up in a press box and you lock the door or if there's obviously just rules, like you make that rule that you can't relay messages, like someone from the team can't walk in and easily relay the signs. I mean, especially for guys in Boston, because now you got the Red Sox accusations. Patriots just came down with a cheating accusation against the Bengals. They've had three other. They had Deflategate. They had Spygate against the Jets. Deflategate, of course, against the Colts a few years ago in the AFC Championship game. New England is just getting punched with black eye after black eye when it comes to cheating accusations. I mean, it makes you think, can Boston win any championships without cheating? Who knows? I guess we'll find out in the future. Astro's going to get slammed in a few weeks. We'll see what happens with Alex Cora and the Boston Red Sox. I think Alex Cora is the one that you got to look at when it comes to these allegations because, again, bench coach of the Astros during their 2017 championship run, manager of the Red Sox during the 2018 championship run. He's got to be involved in this some way, somehow. Carlos Beltran of the Mets even involved. We'll see if he if he manages a game for the Mets this season. It shall be interesting, but that'll wrap up episode 139 of the O-Show, presented by Belly Up Sports. Remember to use your promo code O-Show10, capital O-S-H-O-W-10, for $10 off your next order using TickPick.com. Get your tickets now and use the promo code O-Show20 for $20 off of Mecca Nutrition. If you're ever into banging weights, eating steaks, and sleeping eight, Hit it, hit
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.